Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash wondery, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash wondery to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash wondery. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Story one, the horrifying Hexham heads. In our last few episodes, we have examined reported incidents involving cryptids in possession of near-supernatural abilities, as well as others focusing on allegations of ghostly and inexplicable poltergeist activity. But in this story, we will be looking at a mysterious series of events which incorporate both. Join us as we examine the horrifying history of the Hexham Heads. Pushing open the low wooden gate which led into her front garden, the schoolgirl shouted a farewell to her two friends, who had continued on their way along Rose Road. Aware that her parents would both still be at work for another hour or two, she bent down to retrieve the front door key from its hiding place beneath the flower pot, and then let herself inside. As she did every evening as she returned home from school, Bernice Ross hung her school blazer and bag on her allocated peg, and then looked around for the family cat. The ginger Tom was less than a year old, highly inquisitive, and was always waiting for her in the hallway upon her return. And yet today, the room stood dark and silent, with no trace of the family pet. Calling out its name... Bernice paused for a moment before she heard a muffled cry coming from inside the front room. Joyfully, the girl strode across the hall and pushed the door open to find the small cat sitting staring back at her. Reaching out to pick it up, she was startled when it suddenly lashed out at her with its claws, hissing angrily. Staring down in disbelief at her pet, which had never acted this way before, she slowly backed away out into the hall. 
Bernice was halfway to the door when she heard a muffled thud from up on the landing. Aware she should be alone in the house, the 15-year-old called out for her parents, receiving nothing but silence in return. Peering up into the dark shadows which blotted out the top of the staircase, Bernice convinced herself that she must have been hearing things, and had turned her attention back to the cat when she heard yet another soft thud emanate from above her. Almost immediately, the small animal gave a frightened mule before retreating further into the living room. Bernice began to edge towards the front door, her eyes fixed on the top of the staircase. Ever so slowly, a foot appeared from the shadow, carefully and deliberately planting itself on the uppermost step. It rested there for a moment, before another appeared, descending to the next step down. They were like no feet she had ever seen, covered in a thick pelt of fur with menacing claws extending out from long toes. They began to continue their journey down the stairs towards her. Step by step, a nightmarish apparition revealed itself, its whole body covered in the same dark hair. She could see now that its face was dominated by a long snout, with a wide mouth filled with sharp teeth. As the intruder fixed her with a searching stare, its mouth opened even further, a thick tongue lolling to one side. The girl let out an ear-piercing scream, as long and as loud as she could. Instantaneously, the terrifying creature recoiled, vaulting up and over the banister above it and disappearing from sight. Hours later, when Richard Feacham arrived home from work, he found his daughter shut in the living room. The door was barricaded and she had her beloved cat cradled in her arms, still too terrified to go anywhere else in their home. The incident was the last straw for Richard, who immediately phoned the university where his wife was working. In blunt terms, he delivered his ultimatum. Either she removed the antiquities she was researching from inside their home, or he would take the children and leave. The bewildering story of the two mysterious items that would later become known as the Hexham Heads began in May of 1971, in the rear garden of Three Reed Avenue, an anonymous dwelling situated in the Northumbrian market town of Hexham. This was the home of the Robson family, and on the afternoon in question, the family's two sons were playing outside the house in the rear garden. Colin and Leslie Robson had been engaged in a game which consisted of digging small pebbles up out of the ground and then throwing them at one another. They had been occupied by this activity for a short while, much to the frustration of their mother, when both boys suddenly ceased what they were doing. When Mrs. Robson stepped outside to check on them, her two sons produced a pair of unnaturally smooth stones both of which appeared to have crude human faces etched upon them. They were roughly six centimetres in diameter, but quite different in their apparent design. One was quite masculine in appearance, 
seeming to represent a young boy, whilst the other possessed distinctly female features. Suitably impressed with their find, the two boys brought the stones back into the house and set them to one side, but over the course of the coming days, they would come to regret this decision. The first indication that something unnatural may have entered the house along with the two artefacts came when the adults of the family noticed that the stones seemed to be able to move of their own accord. Waking up of a morning, Mr. and Mrs. Robson would find that the heads had been turned around overnight, facing the opposite direction to how they had been left the previous evening. Sometimes they were found lying on the floor, and on several occasions they were located in different rooms to the one they had been left in. Not long after this, there were several instances of glass objects inexplicably shattering inside the house, despite there having been no one near them at the time of their destruction. Although all the broken glass was collected and disposed of, long shards were later found secreted under the pillows of the girls of the household, a transgression which both boys vehemently denied they had anything to do with. Then, after several weeks of this strange activity, Colin woke up crying in the middle of the night. When Mrs. Robson went to comfort him, he claimed that he'd felt his hair being yanked whilst he was sleeping by a pair of invisible hands. Colin's mother had been sitting on his bed, trying to soothe both him and his brother, who had been awoken by the commotion, when she had suddenly become aware of a presence in the doorway. Looking up, she was horrified to see a haunting vision staring back at her from the entrance to the room. It was humanoid in appearance, but was entirely covered in fur, with a face resembling that of a goat or sheep. The second this entity became aware that Mrs. Robson could see it, it immediately disappeared from sight, leaving no trace it had ever been there. Trying to write the incident off as being emotional and overtired, the rattled housewife elected not to mention the encounter to anyone else, but she was horrified shortly afterwards when her neighbours revealed a similar sighting. Number 1 Reed Avenue was located directly next door to the Robson family residence and was home to Isaac and Nellie Dodd, who had four children of their own. Whilst having a drink one evening with her neighbour, Nellie asked if the Robsons had experienced anything unusual in the weeks before. When asked why, she recounted an unnerving situation which had played out several nights before. On the evening in question, young Marie Dodd had been suffering the effects of a severe ear infection, and so Nellie had gone into the youngster's room at bedtime in order to comfort her. Just as Marie was on the verge of dropping off to sleep, the girl had suddenly sat upright in her bed and began to scream uncontrollably. Unable to calm her daughter down, Nellie had pleaded with her to reveal what was wrong and was horrified when she slowly raised a finger and pointed to something behind her. The mother turned to see a terrifying creature standing at her shoulder, apparently reaching out for her with a long-taloned hand. The intruder had the body of a man, but a face composed of several different animals, 
like a combination of features possessed by a wolf and a goat. Almost immediately, Nellie also started to scream, her frantic cries merging with those of her daughters. The two women watched in horror as the creature dropped down onto all fours, and then quickly fled the room. As Isaac Dodd came running across the landing towards the bedroom, he stopped in his tracks as he heard heavy footsteps proceeding down the staircase behind him. Running back to the top of the stairs, he heard the back door to the address opening. As he quickly made his way down into the hallway, he found the door now wide open. Isaac had locked the door himself an hour before, and was at a loss to explain how it had been opened. More bewildering still, there was no trace of anyone in the garden, despite the high fences surrounding it, and the side gate still secured with a deadbolt. In the days that followed the encounter, activity similar to that experienced in the Robson household began to manifest at number one. Several bottles were seen to roll off tables and smash onto the floor, despite being upright and unattended at the time. The children also made repeated claims that they had been slapped or had their hair tugged by an invisible hand. Eventually, the activity became so distressing that the Dodds considered moving away from the area, but as events were about to demonstrate, whatever had plagued them was far from tethered to the town of Hexham. After several weeks of apparent poltergeist attacks, the Robsons finally decided that enough was enough and passed the heads on to staff at the local abbey. From there, the trinkets were sent to Southampton University for analysis, arriving on the desk of a lecturer named Anne Ross. Dr. Ross was an expert in the field of pagan antiquity and formed the opinion that the two small stone carvings were likely Celtic in origin. During the course of her analysis, she eventually took them home, placing them in a box, but then subsequently forgot about them. A week later, Dr. Ross awoke unexpectedly one evening after feeling a presence in her bedroom. Straining her eyes and looking into the dark corners of the room as her husband slept beside her, she suddenly caught sight of a dark shape standing concealed in the shadows. As the figure then hurried towards the door, she caught a brief glimpse of a tall and slender frame. It moved upright as a biped, covered in jet black fur, with a wolf-like snout protruding from its face. Jumping out of the bed in pursuit, the doctor saw it disappear down her stairs, but was too frightened to follow. Initially, she did not associate the event with the Hexham heads, but several days later, there was a further encounter. Her husband Richard was ill in bed, and their 15-year-old daughter had been taking him a meal upstairs when she had found her path blocked by a sinister entity. As Bernice had tried to scream, the intruder had vaulted the banister and disappeared from sight. The young girl had clearly heard the thump of its feet hitting the wooden flooring of the hall below but when she ventured a look down, there was no trace of it. 
when nothing of a similar nature took place over the next week, the professor believed the matter concluded, only to receive an angry phone call from her husband while she was at work. He returned home to find that Bernice had locked herself in the living room and was too terrified to come out. When she had calmed down, she told him she had seen the creature as she had come home from school. Having now become aware of the history behind the items she was keeping, the doctor hastily removed them and had them placed into storage at the university. The heads would stay there for the next seven years, subjected to occasional testing, until they were then acquired by a man named Frank Hyde. He was an engineer with an interest in the paranormal and asked to be allowed to run tests on them using a Faraday cage. When Hyde passed on in 1984, the location of the heads was lost with him, and whilst the result of his tests on the items have never been made public, some of those conducted at the university were indeed published. The studies carried out by the staff at Southampton University have only added further mystery to the origins of the Hexham heads. They were so roughly carved that it proved difficult to find techniques from any previous historical period to align them to. In addition, there was no organic matter held within the stones, making them virtually impossible to date. It was ascertained that they had been created from what appeared to be solid rock, rather than from any modern composite or type of cement, and that the rock used was grey sandstone, possessing a high degree of quartz. This was in keeping with the rock formations found in the area immediately surrounding Hexham. There was, however, no evidence that the Celts had ever settled the region, and the stones were unlike anything found in the culture of the Roman settlers who founded the town. In 1974, a local tradesman named Des Craigie came forward to claim that he had carved the stones for his daughter, having resided at Three Reed Avenue before the Robsons moved in. To prove the point, he produced a number of copies carved from a composite material, moulded from local crushed stone. But whilst these were similar in nature, Craigie's claims were dismissed by academics, who stated that the carvings and materials used were different. So, if the Hexham heads were not a prank or oddity produced by a local resident, then what were they? In the absence of any further evidence, it would seem that the parallels drawn by Dr. Ross may be the closest explanation. The Celts believed that the head was the location of the human soul, and that stone depictions of it may create links to the spirit world. Countless crude representations of stone heads have been unearthed around Britain, often situated near water, which was believed to act as a conduit for the undead. Hexham is also no stranger to stories involving wolf-like creatures, and in 1904, both the town and the neighbouring settlement of Allendale were plagued by a series of brutal cattle slayings. Veterinarians who examined the bodies claim that the culprit was most likely a large wolf, and several such predators were hunted and killed during the following months. But the slayings continued for another year, until suddenly coming to an end for no apparent reason. 
When later interviewed in relation to the Hexham Heads, Dr Ross stated she had never heard the story of the Wolf of Allendale. Given the great distance between Southampton and Northumbria and the relatively localised nature of the legend, this seems entirely feasible. In the years which have passed since the mid-1970s, the families involved in the story have maintained their accounts of the incidents, without deviation. What little interest there was from the press at the time has long faded, and perhaps the only way to resurrect the story would be to admit that it was a hoax, but both the Ross and Dodd children still stand by their claims. With the loss of the stones, we will likely never know the link between their creation and the bizarre humanoid entities which were seemingly attached to them. All we can do is wait and see if any similar antiquities come to light in the future, and if they do so, what else surfaces alongside them. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You hear that? Your dog knows. Spring is coming sooner than you think. But the warmer weather also means that fleas and ticks are coming back. Fleas are an itchy nuisance and can easily get into your home, furniture, and beds, which can be terrible. Ticks are even worse. They're hard to spot but can carry disease and get your dog really sick. Pet Med's pharmacists connect directly with your vet to save you time and deliver the best flea and tick products for your pet. PetMeds offers low prices on all flea and tick meds, including Nexgard, Simperica, and more. Visit PetMeds.com and use promo code PODCAST to save 40% on your first auto ship order. That's PetMeds.com promo code PODCAST for 40% off your first auto ship order. Story 2. The Curse of the Golden Eagle In April of 1983, author Stephen King released his 13th horror novel, Christine. The antagonist in that story was a haunted car, which pursued and killed a number of characters. But to the inhabitants of one coastal town in the state of Maine, King's creation hits much closer to home. Join us as we delve into the curse of the Golden Eagle. As he pulled up outside the premises he had been ordered to investigate, Officer Pete Sandusky wished he had not made such good time during the trip across the town from the precinct. But Old Orchard Beach was a typical tourist destination, In season, you couldn't move for mobile homes and station wagons packed full of visitors 
desperate for a spot on the beach. Out of season, the place was deserted. This was a journey that Sandusky had known was coming for some time, and one he hoped he would never have to make. But as he had walked into the briefing room that morning, nursing the faint traces of a hangover, his supervisor's expression had been grim. At first, he had assumed his superior was less than pleased by his bedraggled appearance. The party he had attended the previous evening had run late, and this morning, he had not had time to shave. When he had been called to one side after the main briefing, he fully expected to be rebuked. Instead, he had been given a handwritten note with an address on it and ordered to pay a visit. The name of the homeowner was not written down, but then, every officer in the department had already been to the address so many times, it wasn't needed. It was still early, and as Sandusky made his way up the winding path that ran through the overgrown front yard, there were few people about. With a sigh, he knocked on the front door, calling out the name of the man who lived there, a man he had once called a friend. There was no reply, which wasn't unusual, but after a few louder attempts went unanswered, Sandusky grew concerned. He slowly circled the bungalow, peering in through the windows for any sign of life. Most were covered in a grimy layer of dirt and dust, making his task a lot harder. In usual circumstances, his first inquiry would be to see if there was a car registered to the address parked anywhere nearby, but that was not an option. It was obvious that the driveway had not housed a vehicle in years. Eventually, the patrolman tried the back door and found that it was unlocked. He entered and called out to the occupier. Still, there was no response, and moments later, he discovered why. His former colleague was slumped in an armchair, the pistol which had ended his life still clutched in one hand. There was an empty bottle of scotch on the table nearby, with several more littered around the room. Fighting back tears, Sandusky's attention was drawn to a photo lying discarded on the floor near the body. Stooping to retrieve it, he saw that it showed a group of uniformed officers, all posing in front of a liveried police cruiser. With a grunt, he immediately tore the picture apart, screwing up the pieces as hard as he could, and then hurling them across the room. The last surviving man from that photograph was now gone, another apparent victim of a cruel and meaningless curse. When it was released in 1960, the Dodge Motor Company had high hopes for their Polara model. The 330 version in particular weighed twice as much as a standard motor car, with the width and length rivaling that of a limousine. For the time, it was one of the largest sedan vehicles ever designed. Advertised as a luxury car perfect for families, the company planned to build 50,000 units. In reality, sales would fall far short of this. Too expensive for the average family to afford, the few cars that were eventually sold went almost exclusively to various outlets of the emergency services, as an alternative to existing vehicles. 
for fire crews and police teams looking to speed through traffic between locations, transporting multiple personnel without the need to carry bulky or specialist equipment, the Dodge 330 provided a vital service. And this was certainly the case for the car that would eventually become known as the Golden Eagle, which was initially bought by the local police department in the town of Old Orchard Beach, Maine. As it rolled off the line in the summer of 1964, there was nothing special about this particular vehicle. No accidents were recorded at the plant during its assembly, and there was nothing to suggest that its future would be marred by tragedy. For the first year of its existence, it was used by the local police to rush between crime scenes at high speed, transporting up to eight police officers at a time. But less than 12 months later, it was quietly sold to a local resident because of the horrific reputation it had since inherited. It soon became apparent to senior officers within the department that a significant number of people who had been transported in the car had gone on to die as a result of murder or suicide, including their own officers. Having reached a stage where none of their staff were prepared to drive it, the car was sold to a local doctor named Laura Shell. It was he who had the vehicle repainted to its iconic golden colour, making it something of a talking point amongst the town's inhabitants. Twice during the seven years it was in the doctor's possession, the car was struck by lightning, sustaining significant damage on both occasions. Following his ownership, the car would go on to be utilised by the local fire department for a lengthy period, before in 1983 it was again sold back into private ownership. When she purchased the Golden Eagle, Wendy Allen had been well aware of the reputation it had acquired. Having spent the majority of her life in Old Orchard Beach, she knew the stories of how the three police officers who had driven it had gone on to die by their own hand. One of these men, Bruce Savoy, had murdered several members of his family before ending his own life in a truly horrific turn of events. And it was not long after she had acquired the vehicle that she began to experience a series of disquieting incidents. One morning, Alan was taking out the waste bins when she noticed something lying on the bonnet of the parked car. On closer inspection, this turned out to be the carcass of a small bird. Finding no sign of how the unfortunate creature had died, Alan disposed of the body, assuming it had died of natural causes. But over the coming weeks, more animals would be located near the vehicle. Not long after disposing of the deceased bird, Alan found the body of a baby rabbit lying alongside the parked car. The creature otherwise appeared healthy, with no injuries and so she again attributed its death to natural causes. A week later, however, one of Alan's neighbours knocked on her door and informed her there was a fox lying dead at the end of her drive. Now convinced that this was no coincidence, she began to suspect that she was the victim of a targeted campaign. Resolving to take the fox remains to the local veterinarian, Alan learned that the suspected cause of death was electrocution. When she later had the bodies of several more animals examined, also found lying by the car, the vet had told her the same thing. 
having double-checked that there was no exposed cabling or wires anywhere at the front of her property. Alan took her Dodge 330 to a local mechanic, who also failed to find anything which might have caused the deaths of the animals. It was as if a lethal field extended out from the bodywork of the car, ending the life of any creature which ventured too close. But as Alan was soon to discover, the car's murderous intentions were not restricted solely to local wildlife. Despite what had transpired with the dead animals, Alan had not experienced any other issues when driving the car. She had owned it for several months and used it to carpool with other local residents. One afternoon, she needed to run a couple of errands in the nearby town of Scarborough and invited Letta Bryant, the wife of a local clergyman, to join her. The two women were subsequently chatting away as Alan drove along a stretch of highway. Suddenly, without warning, the front passenger door swung wide open. Before Alan could react, Mrs. Bryant started to wail hysterically, grabbing at her seatbelt. Moments later, the belt release unexpectedly opened, and the screaming woman began to slide towards the gaping doorway. In desperation, Alan stamped on the brakes, only to feel the car speed up. Beside her, Mrs. Bryant continued to scream in terror, as her fingers released their grip on the doorframe and she disappeared out onto the highway. With her passenger now gone, Alan found she had control of the car again and quickly brought it to a stop. Luckily, the old woman had not sustained any serious injuries, as the car had not been travelling too fast. But as she had tried to help the woman back to her feet, Bryant had roared at her to get away. She screamed that the car was possessed, and that she had felt cold invisible hands on her seatbelt, which then yanked her from the vehicle. Following the incident, Alan once again took her car to the local mechanic, asking the man to inspect both the door and belt releases. He later informed her that despite multiple attempts, he had not been able to force them open, no matter how hard he tried. Alan repeatedly attempted to apologise to the Reverend and Mrs. Bryant, but was rebuffed on each occasion. This incident would lead to a lengthy battle with the local church, which demanded she remove the Golden Eagle from the town. In the years that followed this event, two different children cycling past Alan's home whilst the Golden Eagle was parked outside were struck by passing vehicles. Both sadly died within sight of the parked car, before emergency services could arrive. The church congregation demanded that the local authorities force Alan to remove the vehicle, believing it was the cause of the children's deaths. But the owner refused, arguing she had the right to park her automobile outside her own home. In mid-2001... Alan was pottering around in her garden when she was confronted by an elderly churchgoer, who claimed that if she did not remove the car, then the local pastor should at least be allowed to perform an exorcism on it. Alan had laughed and told the woman to go away, declaring that she did not believe her car was to blame for any deaths. The argument quickly escalated, 
to the point where local officers had to attend and separate the two parties. The following week, Alan was in her kitchen listening to a local radio station when the contents of a bulletin caused her to stop in her tracks. The old woman who had argued with her had been killed in a traffic collision. When she asked around about the circumstances of the crash, the description of the incident chilled her to the bone. The lady had been driving on a straight stretch of road in fine weather when her car had unexpectedly veered into the oncoming lane. An approaching goods vehicle had braked hard in order to avoid a collision. This manoeuvre caused its trailer to jackknife across the road. The older woman was decapitated in the incident, and the truck driver insisted that her car had appeared to speed up before impact. This event only caused further bad feeling with the church, whose leader Bernard Elliott now encouraged an open campaign of vandalism against the Golden Eagle. As attacks on Alan's vehicle and property became more frequent, she found herself embroiled in a bitter court battle with the pastor. This came to an unexpected end in 2004, when Elliot was arrested for serious fraud offences at the church. His suicide whilst awaiting trial for these charges would be deemed yet another death attributed to the cursed car. In 2010, two church members stole the Golden Eagle from outside Alan's address, driving it to a scrapyard in Freeport for disposal. But when attempts were made to crush the vehicle, the area was struck by a mysterious power cut, temporarily preventing the car's destruction. Undeterred, the church had the vehicle broken up into pieces, selling the parts to various businesses. When she discovered what had happened, Alan set off in pursuit of the remains, obtaining as many as she could before moving them to an undisclosed location. It should be noted that despite Wendy Allen's claims linking her vehicle to numerous deaths, there is little evidence held within the public domain to support her assertions. By Allen's own admission, she is something of a complex character, openly professing a belief in witchcraft and the occult, whilst displaying numerous other vehicles besides the Golden Eagle, which she also claims are haunted. In 2008... Old Orchard Beach was the site of one of America's most infamous murders. A 21-year-old resident named Matthew Cushing was arrested and subsequently convicted of the murders of three family members. Not long after the incident, Alan claimed she had caught Cushing messing around with the Golden Eagle when he was younger. When she began to suggest the car was linked to the killings, she was officially warned by the local authorities not to make such claims. It is apparent that during the lengthy period the vehicle was operated by the local fire department, there were no stories of murders or suicides relating to it. On the contrary, local firefighters had nothing but praise for the car. Firemen who drove it for the next eight years claimed it was possessed by an angel rather than a devil, citing the breakneck speeds it could reach whilst transporting Burns victims to St. Jude's Hospital for treatment. One firefighter... Kenneth Allen, no relation to Wendy, was even presented with a bravery award, having saved the life of a 10-year-old girl who he had transported to the hospital in the Golden Eagle. And yet, 
The car itself clearly exerted such a negative effect on the people of Old Orchard Beach that elements within the town made repeated attempts to have it removed, eventually stealing it and destroying it in brutal fashion. And at least some of the instances of people being harmed after interacting with Wendy Allen's car can be verified. Is it possible that lying somewhere amidst the mythology which has been constructed around the Golden Eagle, there is indeed some truth behind the so-called curse? That there is such a feeling of superstition and repugnance about the vehicle that it creates a negative energy? For instance, the people who interact with the car may go away expecting to have an accident, and in turn, that expectation brings about that exact result. As we have already seen, it would certainly not be the first vehicle to face accusation of being cursed. Perhaps the only way to know for sure will be if Alan does one day return the Golden Eagle to its original home and see whether misery and misfortune return there alongside it.